thank you so much that we can come to your word today. I pray, Father, that you'd open it up to us in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you'd surround us right now with warrior angels to keep out everything of the darkness that would try to interfere with us or disturb us in any way, shape, or form. We ask, Lord, that you just open our minds to hear your word, to understand, and then really to live it out so that we can overcome shame. We love you and praise you, and let your spirit fill me now to the glory and praise of Jesus. Amen. We pick up in Genesis chapter 9, right after um, the, the Noah and the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by his, my man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people... Uh, of the whole earth were dispersed. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, 
the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And then to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. God speaks to the prophet and said, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And then we jump to Romans the 13th chapter, starting with verse 8. Actually, starting with verse 9, sorry. No, excuse me, third, verse 8. I was looking at chapter 12. My fault, I need to pay attention. Paul writes here and he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And finally, one of our favorite passages here at City Temple is Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word.
Once upon a time, there was an emperor whose only interest in life was to dress up in fashionable clothes. He kept changing his clothes so that people would admire him. Several times a day, he would change his clothes. Once, two scoundrels decided to teach him a lesson. They told the emperor that they were very fine tailors and could sew a lovely new suit for him. It would be so light and so fine that it would seem invisible. They gave out that they knew how to weave stuffs of the most beautiful colors and elaborate patterns. The clothes manufactured from which should have the wonderful property of remaining invisible to everyone who was unfit for the office he held or who was extraordinarily simple, read kind of dumb, in character. So the king agreed. He was excited about his new clothes. And he paid a lot of money for these clothes. And the weavers were weaving. And one day the king asked the prime minister to go and check out uh, how the tailors had done. And he went and he thought, you know, I can't see anything. I see the men moving their scissors and things, but I don't see, see the cloth. And he refused to say anything because he thought, well, maybe this means that I'm not fit to be prime minister. Maybe this means that, that I'm, I'm dumb, that, that I don't know what to do. And so he went back and he told the emperor, oh, it looks very beautiful. And the tailors kept weaving and they kept demanding more and more money. And finally they declared that the emperor's new clothes were ready. The emperor came in and he could see nothing. But the emperor said, you know, I don't want to appear to be stupid. Surely this can't mean that, that I'm not worthy to be the emperor. So he admired the clothes and, and thanked the tailors and he was asked to parade down the street for all to see the new clothes. So the emperor in his new suit paraded down the street for all people to see. And the people, they could only see a naked emperor, but no one admitted it because they thought, well, the only reason, if I admit it, that means that I'm, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, or, or maybe I'm not fit to hold the office that I have. They praised the invisible fabric, and the emperor was very happy until one child cried out, the emperor is naked. Soon everybody began to murmur and say, yes, the emperor is naked. The emperor is naked. The emperor is not wearing anything. He has nothing on at all, the people began to cry out. But the emperor was rather upset. He was vexed. He knew the people must be right. But he thought the procession must go on. And the lords of the bedchamber took greater pains than ever to appear holding up his train although in reality there was no train to hold. The emperor realized the truth, but preferred to believe that everybody else was stupid and unfit for their high office. Of course, you know this story. You've heard it many times. It's the emperor's new clothes. The actual story is considerably longer than this. But I think that this story is actually a story about shame. It's about shame because... The idea of nakedness throughout history has actually been a metaphor for shame. And so some people are like the emperor who pretend to be wearing clothes, but in fact 
they are naked and exposed to their shame. Some people are like the thieves, the scoundrels, who profit on the basis of other people's shame. And some people are like the child who almost seem to delight in exposing the shame of the emperor. And it shows the power that shame has had as among us as people throughout the centuries. In fact, as we've seen the last few weeks, it is one of the most powerful negative emotions and negative experiences that human beings have, not only here in the West, but actually around the world. Shame is one of the foundational issues behind marriage breakups. It's one of the foundational issues behind church splits. It's one of the foundational issues behind warring families. It's one of the foundational issues behind war in the world today. We see shame operating all around us and shame operating in our lives. And this dynamic has been there uh, since Adam and Eve chose to sin and it even continued after the flood. Now we see in the story of Noah, we see this shame dynamic at work. Now shame, this idea that we realize that somehow we're naked and exposed as being not quite enough in ourselves, as being perhaps flawed, as being incomplete. This idea that we've been exposed, that we're now naked, shame is actually a normal human response to our sin. So when we sin, shame is the usual response that we should feel. And all healthy people will feel a sense of shame when they sin internally and when their sin is exposed, they'll feel a more public shame. And so much of what happens in life is people trying to deny their shame or uh, blame their shame on somebody else, but shame is a reality because sin is a reality in the world. But as we've seen, the good news is we don't have to live under shame. Jesus Christ has set us free. But when you look in the story of Noah, you can say, why did God destroy humanity with the flood? The reason is, if you look back in the passage that we didn't read, is because humanity was sinning, which they'd been doing before, but human beings became shameless in their sin. And this is a really important thing to note. Throughout history, whenever a society becomes shameless in their sin, that society is close to collapse. Whenever a society becomes shameless in their sin, that society is close to collapse. And we see this pattern, and that's why God destroyed everything in the flood, because not only were people sinning, they were sinning shamelessly. They were sinning and saying, well, it doesn't matter that I sin. It doesn't matter that I kill people. It doesn't matter that I steal their stuff. It's almost my right to do that. So that's what, why God destroyed humanity. And then notice that in the passage that we read, what God does after the flood, God again restores that, which sin polluted from the time of the garden. Notice what he says to, to Noah. He says, you're created in the image of God, so you have worth, and nobody should take the lifeblood of another human being. That's worth restored. 
He gave Noah again the purpose to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, although he didn't continue to subdue it in this point, at this point, but he restored the purpose. He also restored humanity's relationship with God, at least in part, by establishing a covenant that never again am I going to destroy all human beings. No matter how bad they get, I'm not going to destroy humanity from the face of the earth like I did in the flood. And every time you see the rainbow in the sky, you can know that this is my covenant with you. It's interesting how many movements today try to hijack the rainbow as their own symbol, a symbol of shamelessness, when God made it a covenantal symbol. Well, we see this after the flood. This was happening. And the implication here is that shame is going to continue to arise as a consequence of sin. It's going to be there because it's one of the things in our humanity that alerts us to the fact that we're not complete in ourselves, that we need God, we need other people, we need forgiveness from sin, and we need somebody to remove this shame from our, from our lives, this shame because of our sin, because we cannot do it ourselves. And because shame continues in our world, it continues to disintegrate us as human beings and also disintegrates our relationships with other human beings as well as God. So every time shame crops up, it starts a breakdown of human relationships beginning with your own understanding of yourself. And that's how shame is, is bringing about destruction even as it's the normal response to our sin. It should cause us to respond by turning to the Lord, but instead it causes us to respond often by turning on one another. And the shame dynamic continues in our relationships and it continues to work in all of our systems. Not only our relationships, but our families and even our churches, our government, uh, our schools. We're seeing this shame dynamic working all around us and we see what happens in the story of Noah and his sons. Now by this time, later on in the passage, Noah... You know, after the excitement of building the ark and everything like that, he goes to, to start tilling the ground and, and being a farmer. And you can kind of almost imagine the guy being a little bit depressed because he goes from this, you know, saving humanity in the ark to being just an ordinary farmer, but that's the way it was. He plants a vineyard, he makes some wine, and he drinks it, and he gets drunk. At this point in time, the Bible doesn't really label this kind of behavior, this drunkenness, as sinful behavior. It's actually only later that God begins to say, don't get drunk. That's not the right way to do it. That's not the right way to go. So you can't quite say that in his drunkenness he was committing an open, brazen sin act. But at the same time, we all know it wasn't quite right. And, and the implication is probably Noah knew it wasn't quite right. Maybe he was drowning the fact that he's no longer an ark builder and now is a, a farmer. We don't quite know. But what he does, he drinks the wine, he gets drunk, and in his tent, that's his personal space, he exposes himself. This means he's naked. So he goes into his private area and his nakedness is there. And that's what happens with shame. 
when we, when we begin to feel shame, we begin to sense shame, what we do, we go into our, our own little closet, our own little house, our own little tent, uh, metaphorically speaking, and we often will expose ourselves there. And we see our shame, but we try to drown our shame and hide from our shame. And that's almost what Manoah was doing here. This tent symbolizes how shame will enter our personal places. And that's what it did with Noah. And then we have his son, his part of his family, his system, his, his life. And the fact that it's his family really shows us how often this shame dynamic plays out in our families. In fact, throughout history, the family is the primary area where shame performs its disintegrating functions and plays itself out. And that started with Noah. I mean, it's right there in Noah's life. Of course, it was there with Cain and Abel as well, but it's there with Noah. So Noah's exposed, and then Ham, what does he do? He comes in, and he sees Noah's nakedness. Now, this word see here, it can literally mean, you know, you see something, but the implication is kind of the same as when Adam knew Eve. Now, do you all know that when Adam knew Eve, it didn't mean that he got to know her and said, hi, Eve, glad to meet you. There was something deeper that was happening there. And in the same way, when Ham comes in, he gazes at, he stares at, he inspects Noah's nakedness. So here's Noah, he's in his vulnerable, open, naked position, and Ham comes in, and he, you know, he, he checks out his dad's nakedness. We don't know exactly what he does. He might have laughed a little bit. He might have said, oh, you know, dad's kind of dumb here. Uh, we don't know exactly what he did, but we do know that he did this. He went to his brothers, and he sought to expose the shame of his father to his brothers. So what he was doing, here he is as a son who should be honoring his father, who should be thanking his father for what his father has done in his life, but now he's not doing that. He's taking uh, the shame of his father and saying, hey brothers, come and look at this. Shem, Japheth, come and look at dad. He's naked. He's naked in the tent. Now it's not like Noah was naked out in the camp. Noah's in his personal space here, and Shem comes in to his, uh, Ham comes into his personal space, and he exposes his father, and he tries to get the brothers along with the father to take a look and gaze at their nakedness. They gaze at his father's nakedness. Seeing his shame, exposing him as shameful. Now what, what Ham could have done, he could have come in and said, holy cow, dad's naked. Okay, I, I, I need to get a, a sheet or something. I'm going to cover that up. Because, you know, even mom doesn't want to be seeing that. And he could have done that. And that's it. Story over. But that's not what he does. So he comes and he tells Shem and he tells Japheth. And what do they do? They respond righteously. How do they respond? They say, okay, we're going to get a cloak and we're going to put it over our shoulders and we're not even going to open the flap of the tent. We're going to put that cloak over our shoulders and we're going to walk backwards until we see dad's big toe sticking out there. And when we see dad's big toe, 
we're going to toss that cloak over to cover him up, and then we're going to walk out of the tent. They refuse not only not to expose the shame of their father, the nakedness of their father, they refuse to look at it, and they insist on covering it up. And you see this kind of dynamic in families all the time. There are families who love to expose the shame of another person in the family. You know, I used to tell this joke for many years, and I stopped doing it. And so I'm not telling the joke. But it was a one-liner that somebody used to say. They used to say, you know, my wife treats me like a god. She brings me burnt offerings every night for supper. Now, and that's kind of funny, unless you tell it about my wife, in which case it's not funny at all because it's not even remotely true. But you know what that does? That is actually a joke about somebody's shame because you're exposing the fact that your wife is not a good cook for other people to see. You know, there are a lot of times when women who are married, they love to get together with other women who are married and talk about their husbands. And many times when they're together, they begin to expose the shame of their husband. Oh yeah, my husband came home again drunk last night. He's such a, a low life. He doesn't really provide for the family. He doesn't measure up this way. He doesn't measure up that way. And you know what we're doing? We're trying to expose and gaze upon the shame of somebody else in our family and cause other people to expose and gaze upon the shame as well. And when we do that, we're always acting unrighteously. We're always acting sinfully. And that's what Ham and J uh, that's what Shem and uh, that's what Ham did. And Shem and Japheth acted righteously by refusing to look on the shame and by choosing to cover the shame. And once that shame was exposed, once Noah knew what his son had done, look what he did. It causes a disintegration in their relationships as Noah comes and not only speaks a curse over Ham, but also Ham's children. And do you know what happens? When we expose the shame of other people in our system, not only does it bring a curse on us, but it also brings a curse on our offspring, on those who come after us. Now the offspring might be literal offspring, or they might be metaphorical offspring, but when we do that, when we're engaging in that kind of shame relationship, we're bringing a curse on our family system. We cause disintegration of our relationships and disintegration of our system, whether it's a family or it's a church. And I know a lot of churches. You know, one of the reasons why we do not do deliverance in public here at City Temple is because when you do deliverance in public, you're exposing somebody to public shame. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to act that way. Instead, we'll, if a demon manifests, we'll tell it to stop and we'll take the person out in a private place so that we can minister to them properly. It's all about this kind of shame dynamic. And we see this operating not only in Noah, we see this operating all the time. And shamefully, it often operates in Christian churches and Christian families where we play this game 
of exposing one another's shame, exposing one another at our most naked and vulnerable point, and then revealing that to other people, sometimes people who are not even part of our family system. And it always disintegrates relationship. If, if it's a husband and wife, it always disintegrates their marriage relationship. If it's a father-son or mother-daughter or father-daughter, especially a father-daughter, it disintegrates that relationship. Do you know, I know a lot of women who suffer because their fathers shamed them openly. And oftentimes they suffer because their fathers shamed them uh, completely for something that's the father's fault, not the daughter's fault. So the question is here, how do we deal with this? I mean, we've already seen that Jesus Christ in the cross has overcome shame. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a restoration of everything that was lost at the fall. We have a restoration of our relationship with God, it's now unhindered and completely open. We can be completely naked before God. Because God sees everything. We have restoration of our worth and value because Christ has died for us. We have a restoration of our purpose because God has given us a mission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it as Christians. We have a restoration of the ability to have open relationships with one another where we should not fear allowing ourselves to be naked and vulnerable before one another. Jesus has restored all of this to us, and we have it by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So how do we live in light of this kind of shame dynamic, what we saw in the, in the family of Noah, and what we see going on every single day, sometimes in the workplace, I mean, how many times have I talked to people who are shamed by their manager in the workplace? More times than I can count. How about school? So many people are shamed by their teachers in school. This operation is going all the time, so what do we do with it? Because we must not tolerate it any longer. If you tolerate this shame dynamic, shame be upon you because it's shameful to tolerate the shame dynamic operating. And it's even more shameful to be a part of it. So how do we overcome it? What do we do as Christians? Well, we get some good guidance from the scriptures. First of all, first of all, keep your clothes on. One of my favorite stories here at City Temple was a number of years, about a decade or so ago, maybe a little bit longer, we had a guy come in off the street. Uh, he sat there about where Francisco's sitting. And uh, uh, he sat down, and that was fine. Then he got up and took off his coat. That's okay. Then he got up and took off his top shirt. Okay, a little strange. Then he got up and took off his T-shirt. Okay, now it's a little strange, exposing his bare chest. And when he started to undo his trousers, that's when we had a couple of people come and say, no, you can't do that here, and kind of escorted him out. We had to pray a little bit. So we need to keep our clothes on. Keep our clothes on. What does this mean? It means first that we need to remember and believe and have faith in who we already, uh, 
uh, we need to remember and believe that you already have the best possible clothes in Jesus Christ. You already have the best possible clothes in Jesus Christ. We have put on Christ. We are wearing Jesus. Jesus is like our second skin. He is over us. And so the scripture tells us, Galatians says, that we are already sons of God through faith. Men and women, we're sons of God. We're like Jesus before God because of what Jesus has done. And we need to believe it and remember it every single day. Galatians 3.27 tells us that we have already put on Christ. The idea of putting on Christ is like putting clothes on. So we are wearing Jesus almost like it, it, it was on, on one of those fancy dress nights where everybody has to come in a costume. We have Jesus as our costume, only it's the real Jesus, not a fake Jesus. And we're wearing Jesus right now we need also to remember and believe that we already have no need to be ashamed because of who we are in Christ. Paul tells us there's no distinction. There's no male, female. There's no slave, no Greek. There's no Jew, there's slave, nor free. There's no Jew, nor Greek. What he's saying is that no matter who you are, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have no need to be ashamed because there's no distinction. One person can't say, well, I'm wealthy, so I'm a better Christian. Another can't say, I'm poor, so I'm a worse Christian. One person can't say, I'm a 10th generation Christian. And another say, well, I'm a first generation Christian. Nothing makes any difference because we're all one in Christ Jesus. And this is our reality right now. And if you're going to keep your clothes on, you've got to believe it. Many times we don't believe this, and so what we do, we just tend to throw off our clothes. Then Paul tells us, that we need to put on the armor of light. That's in Romans chapter 13. Put on the armor of light. What does this mean? It means, first of all, we live in the light, which means we live in openness and vulnerability before God. We need to live in the light. And one of the things, if you've ever been on the stage... Uh, doing a production, either a theater production or as a musician, you will know that when they turn those bright spotlights on you, you can't see what's on the other side. And so what happens when we put on the armor of light, when we're living in Christ Jesus, the brightness of Jesus shines forth from us so that people don't see our actual nakedness. This is the dynamic that's happening. If you're really living and walking with Jesus, yeah, you'll make mistakes. Yeah, you'll do uh, amazing things wrong, but people will see the brightness of Jesus, not the darkness of your sin, because the brightness of Jesus overcomes any kind of darkness that's in you. It means, too, putting on the armor of light, we have to focus on the light. We need to keep the light on in our lives. You know, many of us are tempted to, to go into the darkness so we can do certain things. And the key thing is for us to keep the light on so that everybody sees, everybody knows. We don't hide anything. Now, that doesn't mean you expose everything to everybody. But you should have at least one person that you expose everything to so that you're living in the light. You're living in the light. You're focusing on the light. 
and you walk in the light. What does this mean? We walk properly. We walk in full view. If we would live asking ourselves the question, would I do this if my friend Federico was right here by me right now? If Federico was seeing me do this, would I do this? If Joshua was with me right now, would I do this? And if you put on any, any Christian, any Christian friend that you have, and you imagine them standing by you and asking, would I do this if this person was here right now? If you can't say an absolute unequivocal yes, then don't do it. You know, would I do this if Rod was looking over my shoulder right now? Would I look at this if Rod saw what I was looking at? That's a powerful thing that we can do. And this is part of putting on the armor of light. And Paul says here, especially watch out for sexual immorality. Watch out for drunkenness. Watch out for quarreling and jealousy. And watch out for sensuality. What's sensuality? Sensuality is where you do what feels right. And a lot of people in our society are living their lives and saying, I'm going to do what feels right. I've got, I've got a right to do what feels right, and if it doesn't feel right, I don't want to do it. And that's a terrible evaluation of how to live your life. That's called sensuality. And Paul says, get rid of all that stuff, but walk in the light. Walk in the light. And then he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is confusing because in Galatians he's told us that we have already put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? What does this mean? Well, the, the text, the, the, the grammar of the Greek here indicates something that happened in the past which has continual relevance into the future. Uh, it's a bit like uh, when, I, when I started the service today, I put on my jacket here, and most of the time in the service, I'm not conscious that I'm wearing a jacket. But then I look down and say, oh, I got a jacket on. I guess I'm going to keep this jacket on for the whole service. That's the idea of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have put on Jesus Christ. It happened in the past when you were saved by grace through faith and you came into union with Christ Jesus. You were clothed with Christ at that time. And now we need to remember that we were clothed with Christ every single day so that it continues to have relevance to us. And part of doing that is to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now what does this mean? It means that we don't plan ahead for how we can sin. That's what Paul's talking about. We don't look ahead and start thinking or strategizing how we can sin. Now for example, somebody having an affair. Do you know adultery doesn't just happen? It's not like one day you go, holy cow, I'm in a bed with a woman that's not my wife. How did she get here? Doesn't happen that way. Adultery occurs because we start to make little provisions in our mind that we're going to have an affair. Oh, she doesn't really care about me. She's not really meeting my needs. Uh, she doesn't feel the way I feel. The life has gone out of our marriage. And you start thinking about these things and what you're doing, you're making provision in the flesh. You know, I've seen this in terms of marriage, in terms of divorce. You know, divorce doesn't just happen. It starts to happen when a, a husband or a wife starts to make provision in their, for the flesh in their minds saying, this could happen. For me, 
one of the things I, I'm doing is trying to cut down on my sugar intake. But I know myself, and I know my tendency when I'm in a place, say, like Waitrose, to gravitate toward the part of the, the shop that has those nice cherry lattices in them, because I really like cherry pastries. And so when I, you know, and I, I'll, I'll play with myself. We play this game, right? We say, oh, well, I'm not going to go that side of the shop. So we do all our shopping on the one side, and we say, oh, but wait, I need a baguette, and the only place I can get a baguette is over here in this part of, of Waitrose, and so I guess I'll just have to go over there, and you go over there, and then you linger for 10 seconds too long in front of that cherry lattice screaming up at you, eat me, eat me, and then your stomach starts to churn and, and growl, you know, because even though you had lunch 10 minutes ago, all of a sudden you're starving and you're going to die if you don't have this cherry pastry, and before you know it, you got the cherry pastry, and that's making provision in the flesh. And Paul says, when you put on Jesus, he will help you to remember not to do this, so don't make a provision in the flesh. So the first thing we have to do is keep our clothes on. The second thing, we need to help others keep their clothes on. We need to help others keep their clothes on. First, this means that we will refuse to expose the nakedness and shame of other people. Refuse to do it. One of the reasons that we have a good marriage is even though I have done many things in my life deserving of shame and some things which I generally have felt shame about, my wife has never once in 33 years exposed my shame. She's not exposed my shame to me, let alone to anybody else. And that helps me to be a better man. She refuses to expose my nakedness. We must refuse to expose the nakedness of others. We must never use shame as a weapon. We must never use shame to take advantage of other people. And remember, you have now been warned by the Scripture because if you use shame, if you expose the shame of other people, or if you make plans to expose the shame of other people, the Bible says that shame will cover your glory and violence will overwhelm you. This is a solemn warning from the Lord. Do not use shame. Never, never, never. It's never appropriate even in the body of Christ. Do not use shame as a weapon. The second part of keep, helping others keep their clothes on is we must cooperate as a family first not to look on the nakedness of others and two, to cover their nakedness. You know, this might be surprising to you. I am not the best of pastors. I am not the greatest of leaders. Uh, I've got a lot of weaknesses and a lot of failures in my life as a leader. Now, some of you might be shocked at that. Others of you will say, well, gosh, Rod, it's about time you came to know what we've all known. But I am blessed by having elders around me that conspire together to cover my shame. Our elders conspire to cover my shame, not to expose my shame. And let me tell you, I've been in churches where I've had elders who 
wanted to expose my shame, who worked hard to expose my shame, and even when there wasn't any shame, they worked hard to create it so that they can expose it. And we have a solemn responsibility as the body of Christ to cooperate together as the family of God, not even to look on the nakedness of other people, but to also help them cover their nakedness in their personal place. That means helping them keep their clothes on. And then Paul tells us one other thing that we can do as we work together to help others keep their clothes on. He says... Pay the love you owe others, and this is a love that covers shame. I love what Peter says, 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we're not talking about sweeping sin under the rug, okay? We're not talking about conspiring together to hide something where somebody is behaving shamelessly. We're not talking about conspiring together to hide something when somebody is behaving sinfully, intentionally. But we are conspiring together to love one another because that love, earnest love, will cover a multitude of sins. And it's only when somebody chooses to throw off their own clothes and expose themselves that we begin to deal with it. If we love one another earnestly, and I mean sometimes challenging one another when we're behaving in a way, a sinful way, that's part of that love. You know, many times we don't love one another to tell one another when we think they're sinning. And we don't love one another to listen to one another when they tell us that. But we need to love one another passionately. And Paul says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does not harm a neighbor. And he says it's all summed up with this. Love your neighbor as yourself, which we know is the second greatest commandment. If you don't want your nakedness exposed, then don't expose the nakedness of others. Instead, love them earnestly and passionately with the love of Jesus Christ. And as we work to keep our clothes on, and as we work to help others keep their clothes on, then what God does, He comes into the midst of all of that, and He heals our shame, and He reminds us of who we really are, and He shows us His love, and He empowers a witness to Jesus Christ that a world filled with shame wants to know and wants to hear. We can do this because Christ is in us. He's working in us and through us. And Jesus Christ in the cross has conquered shame. Jesus Christ in the cross has conquered shame. And Jesus Christ in the cross will overcome shame in your life and in your system, your family, if you'll allow him to do it. Father God, I pray that you'd come now in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd move in power. Move by your glory. Father, I pray first of all 
that you'd expose in our hearts whether we have sinned by shaming others, by exposing others to shame, by showing others nakedness. Lord, move in our hearts if we've done that. If the Spirit of God is convicting you, He might be showing you things right now that you've done. And as soon as He shows you something, right now, in the name of Jesus, just say, Father, I have done that. I have sinned against you and against this person in my life. And right now, I choose to repent. And I ask you to forgive me and to heal me so that I never use shame again. I never expose the shame of another again, but I become active in covering shame because you have overcome shame in the cross. Now, if you prayed that prayer right now, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and you begin to wash that person, these persons, and I think there's several people in the church. The Lord has convicted you. Wash them right now by your blood and wash the shame away and wash the sin away. So that they will not have shame any longer. And right now, there's some here for whom shame has been an issue in your family system. And I think the Lord wants to begin to heal that right now. So with nobody else looking, uh, and I'm not going to have everybody come down or anything like that, because that could evoke shame. But right now, if you realize that that's you, one, that you've been an agent of shame in your family, let's start with that. If you've been an agent of shame in your family, I want you to just kind of lift your hand up very slightly. You don't, not even shoulder high, just enough so you're acknowledging before God that yes, God, I've been an agent of shame in my family and shame has been part of my family system. Father God, I pray that that person, whoever, whoever those persons are that have just lifted their hands right now, that Father, in the name of Jesus, you'd break the power of shame over their life by the cross of Christ right now. Lord, cause them to lay down, lay down the shame that you've used as a weapon Lay it down right now in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you bring healing upon those persons right now. <coughs> and if you have been wounded by shame in your family, you know you've been carrying that and your family system has caused you to feel shame, Maybe it was because your parents exposed you as something shameful. Might be because you as a husband has exposed your wife or your children to shame. Or maybe you as a wife has exposed your husband or your children to shame. If you realize that right now that you've been a victim of shame and a willing participant in this shame, the Lord wants to begin to heal you. And so I'd invite everybody to stand, not just those who, who, who could say yes to this, but I want everybody to stand. And if this has been true for you, that 
you have been shamed in your family. You've been shamed in your family because of who you are, maybe something you did that didn't meet up to your family's uh, criteria. If you've been shamed in your family, I invite you to, to lift your hands to the Lord just like this. And just open yourself. And I'm not looking at anybody. Nobody else look at anybody else around you. But just lift up your hands to the Lord right now. Father, in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask the Holy Spirit to come now. Holy Spirit, come and begin to do the work of healing in the people who are standing open before you right now, exposed before you. Begin to knit up that which has been torn in them because of shame. Begin to bring the healing that they need in the depths of their being because of the shame that they've carried. Just open yourself up to God. God will not shame you. Many of you are maybe sensing the Holy Spirit just kind of flooding you right now, a little bit uh, uh, almost like an anesthetic that floods through your, your, your blood. Uh, or you might be sensing the Holy Spirit, just you know, something that's kind of coming down from your head, almost you're feeling flush in your face. Uh, if, that, if you're feeling that, then allow the Holy Spirit just to continue to work in you. If you're not feeling anything, then just keep pressing in by faith. You may not feel anything. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. In fact, if you're not feeling something, it might be that the Lord is trying to free you from the dependency on your feelings to trust Him. So Father God, come in the power of your Holy Spirit and begin to heal and begin to wash away that shame in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the authority of Jesus, I just speak over your life, you are a son of God fully pleasing to Him. Women, I speak over your life. You are a woman of God who is beautiful, who is loved, who is cherished, and who is complete in Christ Jesus. Men, I speak over you that you are a man of God, clothed with Jesus Christ, mighty for spiritual battle over your family, over your workplace, and over others who are in bondage to shame. Let's continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work. Continue to allow the Holy Spirit to move in your heart. Holy Spirit, come. Just keep working. Keep working. If He's moving in you, if He's speaking to you, if He's touching you, just continue to allow Him to do that. Worship team, come on up. We're going to sing about the goodness of the Lord. We're going to close our service with this song about the Lord's goodness today. But continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work. Right now, the Lord God is smiling on you. He sees you in your naked vulnerability and He loves you. He is not looking at your imperfections. He's looking at your completeness in Christ Jesus. Believe this.
receive this. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do it now. Just go before the Lord in your own words and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me and thank you for rising from the dead. Forgive me. Wash me clean of my sin and my shame. Fill my life with your Holy Spirit and lead me. Just a prayer like that in your own heart, in your own mind. And the Lord receives you without shame. Father, we love you, we worship you, and we adore you.